Welcome to Independence Day. Well, at least if you're not unfortunately in Leicester this weekend. It's July the 4th and today, led by the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, millions of us in England will be heading to the pub and a haircut, but not necessarily in that order, as the coronavirus lockdown continues to lift. And in a week when the lockdown passed its 100th day, that's nearly a third of a year, the government got onto the front foot and told millions of school children in England that they're required back in the classroom in September, come what may. Yet the week started with eyes diverted away from the pandemic and into Whitehall, where Sir Mark Sedwill, Britain's top civil servant, quit suddenly from his jewel-hatted role as Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor. But many felt the barely disguised hand of Dominic Cummings, Mr Johnson's chief advisor, in the sudden departure of Britain's top Mandarin. And it got worse for some critics when David Frost, a political appointee in 10 Downing Street and Mr Johnson's chief Brexit negotiator, was given that job of National Security Advisor. In the House of Commons the following day, former PM Theresa May, who had appointed Sir Mark to both roles when she ran 10 Downing Street, could barely contain her fury as she confronted Michael Gove over the changes. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new National Security Advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? We brought together Sir Bernard Jenkin, Chairman of the House of Commons Liaison Committee, who formerly ran the Commons Committee that oversaw the civil service, and Jill Rutter, a research fellow at King's College London and a former civil servant, to read the Whitehall runes and work out what it all means. So was Mrs May right to be so apparently furious, I asked Sir Bernard. I think she's a fierce guardian of an independent and impartial civil service. And a lot of people have been affronted by the replacement of a civil servant as National Security Advisor by a political appointee who is not even a civil servant. Of course, he was a former civil servant, wasn't he, Jill Rutter? I mean, have you ever seen anything like it? Clearly, there'd been quite a lot of unhappiness with Mark Sedwell. We'd seen briefings against him, briefings against other permanent secretaries. Ousting a cabinet secretary in these terms is, I think, unprecedented. But we have seen cabinet secretaries before, if you like, sort of sidelined by prime ministers. I think the interesting thing about the David Frost appointment was that they could have made it less provocative. They could have actually stressed some of the features of the appointment that the intelligence agencies weren't going to report to him. And indeed, if they could have easily just said that David Frost was going to become the Prime Minister's global affairs advisor with a brief covering global Britain and national security. If they'd done that, I think nobody would have batted an eyelid. Do you think, Sir Bernard, that Sir Mark should have seen this coming? He was very tied to Theresa May's regime, and of course that wasn't best popular amongst the Brexiteers. I think he did see it coming, actually, and it's quite clear that he was planning to leave soon, but it was, I have to say, pretty despicable the way he was briefed against over the weekend. It is perfectly possible for relationships not to work, but it could and should have been done much more gracefully. Jill Rutter, isn't it by appointing a political person to that role of National Security Advisor, isn't that just been quite clear the job has always been essentially political, advising the PM is by its nature a political role? It makes it more transparently obvious about what that job is. No, I think it's very different because we clearly distinguish in our system between two things. One is ministers who provide political advice. 
they're assisted by a handful of political advisors who have a sort of purely advisory role, don't direct civil servants. And then you have the sort of executive roles in the machine. It was originally conceived as a ministerial role. And I think actually it's not totally clear whether they might not end up making David Frost, who's being put in the Lords as well, a minister which would actually fit in our system. I think the fact is it doesn't really fit in our system. But I wondered, uh, Bernard Jenkins, why now? I mean, politics is all about timing. Do you think that the government sees a gap in this dreadful COVID crisis before the next possible spike in the autumn? So now's the chance, the next few months, to get stuff done, to shake things up, use the crisis, make sure it doesn't go to waste? I think there's a little bit of scapegoating going on, that somehow the centre of government has failed and it's Mark Sedwell's fault. But it's, I think it's also very important to realise there has been a very long-term agenda amongst a minority of ministers to politicise the top echelons of the civil service, that somehow not being able to make political appointments is a limitation on ministerial power. And honestly, that is a complete misunderstanding of the relationship between ministers and officials. Officials will die in the ditch to deliver what ministers want. So, of course, yes, it's a remain civil service, because for 50 years we've had a pro-EU or pro-common market government. And this is a very big shift in policy. But when Margaret Thatcher got in in 1979, there weren't many monetarists about in the government. Uh, But by the mid 80s, everyone was saying we are all Thatcherites now. And um, that is the job of ministers to demonstrate leadership. And leadership is not about instructing and measuring and metrics and then punishing and blaming. Leadership is about inspiring. Maybe we need a bit more inspiration and a little bit less intimidation. Um, Jill Rutter, we are thinking about a second spike of this awful disease in the autumn. What should happen now in terms of changing white hall to make sure that the country is ready for that? There's been talk this week of public health England being scrapped. It's not the time to go in for big institutional changes. It's nuts to do that. Actually, I think, you know, it's not a window to do massive organisational upheaval or indeed to have everybody looking down and dusting off their CVs to apply for loads of jobs that are going. What you really want to be doing is doing a very honest internal assessment, saying, actually, what did we, as ministers and as officials and as sort of people like Public Health England agencies, what did we get right? What do we need to not get wrong next time round? So we've learnt all of that from that. So we really are genuinely much better prepared. The last thing you want is to be, you know, remaking departments. We saw that with the announcement of FCO, DFID, etc. Having, you know, lots of top mandarins going, others looking over their shoulder thinking, well, they've taken out Mark said, well, uh, that's not an environment in which people are going to be giving their best advice or indeed concentrating on the day job. So I would say actually use the time well uh, and then you give yourself a chance to do that once you're through the second spike and once you're through coronavirus. I agree with Jill. And uh, now is not the time to make big institutional changes. I mean, the changes the government has made on the hoof are bringing in the capability to command and control across departments on PPE, on track and trace, on the design of the app, one or two other areas where, where there was clearly discoordination between the departments. When you're in a crisis, then the usual boundaries to, between departments need to be broken down. And that's where the centre should be strong. But um, maybe there was also a bit too much centralisation. Maybe local government wasn't given enough opportunity to develop their own ways of dealing with things, certainly on the ground. We couldn't have got through this crisis without local government, which I don't think the government uh, necessarily gives enough credit to.
That was Sir Bernard Jenkins and Jill Rutter. By Tuesday, Boris Johnson was in his best boosterish form when he delivered a much-trailed speech setting out his plan to speed up building projects in what can only be described as a much watered-down version of US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. The PM's Build, Build, Build theme was lining repeated again in the House of Commons the following day when he faced a Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions. We're proceeding with uh, the New Deal, the fair deal for the British people, which will be not just massive investment in our National Health Service, £34 billion in our NHS, £14 billion more into our schools, but uh, a, an investment in infrastructure going up to £100 billion. That, we are going to build, build, build and deliver jobs, jobs, jobs for the people of this country. But while the Prime Minister's speech gets a broad outline, we've got to wait till next week to hear the full details from Chancellor Rishi Sunak when he sits out his thinking on what fiscal levers he'll be pulling to help Britain out of this Covid crisis. So who better to reflect on Boris Johnson's speech and to understand the options over to Mr Sunak than Lord Lamont of Lerwick, who, as Norman Lamont, was a senior minister in Margaret Thatcher's government in the 80s and was Chancellor in John Major's government in the early 1990s. I began by asking him what he thought of Mr Johnson's speech. Well, I think it was a bit of a holding speech, but he wanted to signal the general direction of travel. We all know that he's very committed to infrastructure. It's quite true that some of the money, some of the schemes had been announced already. That's not really the point. I think he was just indicating that in order to counteract the downturn, one part of the government's response is going to be infrastructure and building of course, there are other things that follow from building. You've got to have the apprenticeships, you've got to have the training, you've got to ease the planning situation as well. But those were his priorities. Do you think we know any more about what Johnsonianism is? Uh, is it quite a state interventionist government, do you think? Well, I hope it's not going to be state interventionist. And I don't think what he said means that it has to be. Building infrastructure doesn't mean that you're going to have more state ownership or indeed more of the state directing things. I mean, building doesn't mean intervention in the strict sense. You were a minister of all of Margaret Thatcher's government post-1983. Could you see Boris Johnson in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, do you think, given what we're seeing about this Johnsonianism this week? Well, I think Margaret would have liked his positive note, his optimism. A lot of people say, oh, the fact that the government is going to borrow more money is very unthatcherite. But you, you can't ignore the fact that interest rates are extraordinarily low and in some cases negative. Governments are actually being paid to borrow. So, you know, given that we have this extraordinary crisis, it is an extraordinary emergency. The Thatcher doctrines are not all of them, the right ones. You know, there has to be a slightly different approach. But where I think we do need a Thatcherite Reagan approach is I think the recovery must be, and this should be emphasised at some point by the Prime Minister, the recovery has to be led by the private sector because it is the private sector ultimately that generates the wealth. So, Lord Lamont, this week has been punctuated by almost daily job loss announcements, mainly in the retail sector, but some in manufacturing too. How worried are you that we're facing 1980s levels of unemployment when it hit three million in the mid part of that decade? Well, I am extremely worried about it. As you say, there have been a lot of announcements. And, of course, we know that the furlough 
scheme in which about 40% of the private sector labor force is covered by it is going to be tapered and then eventually withdrawn at the end of October. So I am extremely worried. Of course, you get conflicting accounts. Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, thinks that the recovery will be faster than had previously been forecast. I'm skeptical about that. And I think what is important when Mr. Sunak speaks next week is that we don't just talk about build, build, build. That is very important. It's a positive aspect. But of course, building infrastructure doesn't create jobs immediately. And I think we've got to look at ways in which we save the um, help to support the jobs of existing businesses, not just concentrate on new businesses, existing businesses. Because remember, businesses that are under threat are not culpable. It's not their fault. It's not their inefficiency that has caused them to be in difficulty. It's because of the measures that the government itself has imposed on companies that has forced them to borrow, forced them to lose orders. So it'd be right that we take measures to support existing businesses. And, you know, I would look particularly at the cost of employing people, national insurance, that sort of thing. You mentioned there Andy Haldane. Are you hopeful of a V-shaped recovery? Because we have heard about the idea of a U-shaped recovery or even an L-shaped non-recovery. Well, it could be anything. I think it might be a W-shaped recovery. That is to say, we'll see a bit of a bounce back. But then you may see possibly credit defaults, loans being defaulted on, and that will in turn exacerbate the situation, lessen demand, make the banks less willing to lend, and of course you will have rising unemployment. I mean, there is a tide undoubtedly coming towards us which will slow things down. Although this is no fault of the government, I think it would be naive to expect that the public won't become somewhat critical of the government. Would you seek to prolong the furlough? Well, that is an interesting question. I noticed that Mervyn King talked about prolonging the furlough, and I'm going to look into what other countries in Europe are, are doing. The problem about that is, one, it is very expensive, and secondly, you don't uh, want to have a deadweight cost, that is to subsidise people who would have been taken back anyway. But I think direct measures to help employment are the sorts of things that uh, Rishi Sunak should look at. Lord Lamont of Lerwick there. Now, if Boris Johnson's speech was aimed at any one group, it was people living in seats in the north of England, won by Mr Johnson's Tories in December's election, just eight months ago. I know, amazing, isn't it? But did the PM's words hit the mark with those former Labour voters? And what could new Labour leader Sikir Starmer do to win them back? To discuss this, I called on Professor Matthew Goodwin and Professor Tim Bale, two leading academics who have both published papers on what is needed to win over these so-called swing voters. Matthew Goodwin's paper for the Joseph Rowdy Foundation looked at low-income voters, the 2019 general election and the future of British politics, while Tim Bale's research for UK and Changing Europe was titled Mind the Values Gap. I started by asking Professor Matthew Goodwin whether it is really true, as his research had showed, that the Conservatives are no longer the party of the rich. 
Yeah, so the 2019 general election was the first time as far back as we have data where the Conservative Party became more successful among low-income voters than Labour. So, you know, the old claim that the Conservative Party is a party of the rich and the Labour Party is a party of the poor doesn't really stack up in a way that it once did. But they're not voting for the Conservatives because of their economic experience. They're voting for the Conservatives because they share a cluster of values that relate to how they feel about the nation, their national identity, community and tradition. And all of those things really led them away from Labour, which many, by the way, noticed Labour's drift toward a second referendum and led them away from a party that they felt was no longer interested in those things. Tim Bell, do you think Sir Keir Starmer's election in April as Labour leader means that the party might better represent these views now? Well, I think diagnosis is easier than prescription, of course. Uh, While it's very clear that, as Matthew says, Labour are quite a long way from many of uh, those people whose votes they need to get back on those social and cultural values, it's harder to see what exactly Labour has to do to signal to them that it's back in touch with them because so many of the things that those people would like, for example, on on immigration, but not just on immigration, it's actually quite difficult for a, a liberal left party, which the Labour Party has become, at least in terms of its membership and in terms of its MPs, to deliver. While Keir Starmer will probably try and, if you like, fight the Conservatives to a score draw on social and cultural values, he's going to have to emphasise as much as possible the economy because, as Matt says, that's where, really, Labour have got much more in common with the voters that they need to get back. But how do you think that the Labour Party can respond to this levelling up agenda, which has been pushed very hard by Boris Johnson in his speech this week? Well, I think Labour will be able to suggest that it's not going anywhere near far enough or fast enough to sort out some of the long-term problems that this country uh, has got in terms of productivity, in terms of peripheral areas not benefiting from some of the growth that we, we have seen. And I think, you know, it's also true to say, of course, that Labour can suggest that the benefits, such as they are, of, you know, a bounce back in this country won't be redistributed fairly. And if you look at the economic values that, uh, you know, former Labour voters have got, and indeed, it should be said, the majority of the country have got, this stress on fairness is incredibly important. And that, in some ways, is why, uh, for example, the Dominic Cummings affair, I think, was quite damaging for the government, because this idea that there's one rule for them and, and one rule for the rest of us bleeds into this suspicion on the part of many voters that the Conservative Party, and it's a historical suspicion, if you like, is really only for the rich. So the economic policy needs to be crystal clear, but it also actually has to be quite hard-edged in that sense. It has to be quite populist, if you like, in a left-wing sense. My argument, and I know that Tim has also made this argument in a recent piece, is that if you looked at this pragmatically and you said, okay, what does Johnson need to do to hold on to power? He basically needs to hold together his pro-leave alliance that cuts across working class voters and also traditional true blue conservatives. And that means he basically needs to walk this tightrope between giving the Red Wall more economic power within a settlement that they feel is broken, but also reaching out to these voters in terms of their values. They don't like statues being torn down unilaterally. They don't like to see what 
elites disparaging the nation. They want to see people talk about the optimistic and positive side of the country. They want control over migration and these kinds of things. If he can do all of that stuff, this will be a decade-long premiership. If he doesn't, then actually Labour could be back sooner than we think. And to what extent do you think that the COVID-19 crisis will affect the parties going forward? How will it change the state of play in British politics? Well, I think there are good reasons to expect that the crisis is going to exacerbate many of the trends that had already been sweeping through British society. We know that it has been left behind workers, low-skilled service sector workers, alongside black and minority ethnic voters who have been hit the hardest by this crisis. And I think, you know, on the one hand, for the Conservative Party, that speaks to the need to deliver and give something, you know, make life easier, make life fairer for those communities. At the same time, for the Labour Party, I think, you know, that any big new seismic crisis really calls for competent leadership. And for the Labour Party now, they have to try and project that competency to lead voters away from the Corbyn era. Tim Bale? I think there definitely is an opportunity there for the Labour Party. I think while values have obviously been incredibly important in the last couple of elections, and particularly in 2019, I think if the economy becomes the absolute number one issue, and we go back to bread and butter issues, if you like, about the provision of public services, jobs, etc., then I think that gives the Labour Party an advantage over the Conservative Party, particularly if it looks as if the Conservative Party isn't going to handle the economic fallout from the COVID-19 crisis as well as most voters will be hoping it can. Tim Bell and Matthew Goodwin there. Now, plenty of us will feel we've all put on a few pounds during this long lockdown, and Boris Johnson is no different. To the extent that, to prove he was, in his words, as fit as a butcher's dog, he started doing press-ups during an interview last weekend with the Mail on Sunday. That prompted Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer to challenge Mr Johnson to 50 of them. A bit desperate, perhaps? Well, it certainly appeared so, and it took Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon to deliver what can only be described as a metaphorical eye roll on social media to put those two men in their place. But there's no question that tackling obesity and promoting exercise is the next big challenge for the government as the UK prepares to emerge from this pandemic. And who better to discuss this than Baroness Burton, who, as Gabby Burton, was a press advisor for David Cameron in 10 Downing Street, and political journalist and former lobby chairman Emily Ashton. I started by asking Gabby Burton if she felt these men were being, well, a bit silly, frankly. So let's sort of think in a parallel universe. If Theresa May had still been Prime Minister and, let's say, Harriet Harman had been leader of the opposition and, and they challenged each other to a, an arm wrestle at PMQs, people would think it was completely incredible. So it's a bit of harmless fun, but it is pretty juvenile. Why do you think male politicians have to do this? I mean, is it that... Uh, if you're a bloke, you've got to be very fit. Is that what's going on here, Emily Ashton? I don't know if you should go if look at it that deeply, to be honest. I think Boris Johnson likes to do these ridiculous, silly photo ops. He loves being a bit of a buffoon. It doesn't really matter that he doesn't look like Daniel Craig. That's the whole point. He just he, know, he hopes that people will look at him and say, oh, what is he like, eh, Boris Johnson? I don't think this is like a, a serious show of strength, you know, like Vladimir Putin going on his horse without a shirt. You know, he, he knows he looks mm. ridiculous. And that's what he's trying to do, I think. Probably since sort of Celtic tribes are ruling the land, um, there's been this fear of showing any kind of weakness in a leader and particularly physical weakness. And I don't think that's ever going to change. But it, I think it puts a huge pressure on prime ministers and politicians to always look like they're absolutely on top of their game and, and for them to never take a break and say, actually, you know, I need to look after myself a bit more. So I think they need to watch that. 
Yes, I was going to ask you that, uh, because when you were in number 10, you worked with David Cameron from about 2006 to 2016 as his head of press and into director of communications and everything else in number 10. Uh, did he have a problem mm. getting exercise? Is, that, is it quite hard being in that gilded cage? Well, I think it is, because you've got to remember that you're not... Um, I mean, it's perfectly possible to be fit and healthy as a Prime Minister, plenty are, but you are not leading a normal life. I mean, for a start, you're driven everywhere. You live above the shop, so there's no opportunity to walk to work. And as soon as you do put your foot out, out of number 10, you're in the public glare. So, you know, you've got to be really disciplined and determined to want to keep fitness into your schedule because obviously the block in your diary that says Prime Minister's jog very often becomes a sort of low-hanging fruit or code for this is where we put, you know, the meeting with angry backbenchers that day. And you have to really sort of kick back and say, no, this is sacrosanct and, you know, it's as important as a, a slot for a global leader. But that in reality is quite difficult to maintain. You'll know all about David Cameron and his wild swimming, but I do know that for a fact that he would regularly spot a lake and then pull over and order all of his team into the water. I know. Well, um, <laughs> actually, talk about you talk about machismo. So when we first, when he first became prime minister, we went to the. It was, I think it was the G8 in Canada. And um, he, yes, he went for one of these wild swims. I certainly didn't go in, I can tell you. And then the next day, the word got out that this, you know, young upstart, this new leader had gone for a wild swim. And then the next day, of course, Berlusconi was sort of there in his speedos, kind of trying to outdo him. We saw it the weekend, uh, last weekend, Emily Ashton, didn't we? Tony Blair admitted he'd done no housework for over two decades. How, what do you make of that? I mean, did we get these kind of spoilt leaders who don't really do any extra hard work anymore in the house? Well, I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about um, with the Boris Johnson press-ups and all these things. You know, ties into what is a real man. And you know, Tony Blair saying in, um, I think it was the Sunday Times, wasn't it, talking about housework and how he hasn't really lifted a finger since 1997, hasn't driven a car, hasn't L- done a load of washing. Him. I know. Uh, hasn't cooked a meal. And I think you just think, would a woman be able to get away with that to the same extent that a man does? Mm. It read very badly to me, that kind of interview. Boris Johnson, when he was going for Tory leader last year, talked about attacking the continued creep of the nanny state. Do you think we're going to see a review of sin taxes or, in fact, more taxes on sugar? There was a serious point here. He's worried about weight, isn't he? Emily Ashton. Yeah, so uh, Boris Johnson said, you know, he's about to outline plans to tackle obesity over the next couple of weeks, I think. And, you know, we're looking at kind of exercise schemes for the whole family, maybe banning these buy one, get one free deals, unlimited refills on this junk food. But I think it's the coronavirus that has really moved things on even more. And you've seen that the prime minister, he was in intensive care himself. He's acknowledged that his own weight has fluctuated over the years. And I, I think he's on a new slimming regime now. But I think it's interesting how it kind of appears to go against Boris Johnson's libertarian instincts. You know, if you, if you told Johnson a few years ago, hey, look, when you're prime minister, you're going to order people to stay home. You're going to use taxpayers' money to pay people's wages. Oh, and you're going to ban them from eating too much junk food. I don't think he, he would have believed you, you know. But I think coronavirus has kind of forced him to see the world a bit more differently. Yeah. I think Boris Johnson has actually got a golden opportunity here because... It's all about cut through. It's all about trying to get people to hear what you're saying. And obviously legislation is only part of that. But it can sometimes sort of fire the starting gun for a a wholesale kind of change in attitude. And as Emily says, combined with, 
you know, the impact that we now know that being obese uh, can have on how you recover from coronavirus. I think that many people will sit up and, and, you know, change their lifestyle. So he should double down on this agenda, if you ask me. You know, we are in exceptional circumstances and we must try and take opportunities and good things from what is really quite a dark time at the moment. Gabby Burton and Emily Ashton there. Well, it's nearly lunchtime and Independence Day has only just begun. I'm off for a wild swim. I might even bump into David Cameron. Now he's got more time in his hands. The Week in Westminster will be back next Saturday when taking you through the events of the week and reaction to Richard Sunak's fiscal plans for the post-Covid economy will be Pippa Creer of the Daily Mirror. <laughs>